Welcome to Alessia's Divine Comedy, a journey through Dante's masterpiece, a read-along podcast hosted by me, Alessia Cesana Harris. This is episode 6, Canto Sesto, the first day during the night. Welcome back. I hope you had a lovely weekend, whether it lasted two or three days. I spent mine watching the virtual conference of the Theology of the Body Institute, which was a very good thing to have around, as the weather had suddenly gone really cold, and I wouldn't have stayed out much, even if we were not in lockdown. In fact, if you hear a background noise that wasn't there before, that's my heating that is on. I apologise. If this is the first time that you join us, since more and more people find this humble podcast every day on more and more platforms that approve us, I invite you to start from episode one because it's a narrative poem and if you start on the sixth episode, you missed out. I'm working behind the scenes to find a way to improve the situation with the music and the intro, so if any of you listening knows how and can help me, please help me so I can stop torturing everyone with what I can do with the limited capabilities of Anchor itself. I know it's like going along on a journey of progression ourselves, but I'm sure you'd rather listen to something a bit more polished. Anyway, today we are talking about the third circle of hell out of nine, and it occurred to me in a dream that I did not say what the number nine means in numerology. That's because I didn't know either, so I didn't really think about it, and so I didn't look it up. Apparently, 9 means change, or the completion of an era, or wisdom. I'm not sure that any of them really fits in with the composition of hell, do you? The 7 deadly scenes plus 2 extra levels may be all that there is to it. This circle is the one that houses the gluttonous. And as a foodie, I have a really hard time accepting that what could become a sin if left unchecked that I commit is more severe than cheating on your husband. Perhaps Dante had these same feelings and gave an easy ride to his predispositions. But before we get to meet any of the food bloggers of the past, we meet Cerberus, the three-headed dog of ancient mythology and in this case the myth of Hercules. I'm a bit confused about Dante fainting and then finding himself to have moved and arrived at his destination, but perhaps weight is not a thing in hell and Virgil carried him or something. Unlike the previous guardians, Cerberus seems part to the publishment, as it acts like a ravenous dog over the damned, who are lining the mud under a heavy rain that is a mixture of all sorts of wet weathers, and, of course, incessant. I don't know why this is the punishment, when it would have really been so much more cruel to have a bunch of demons eat your favourite foods and when you try to eat some, it tastes foul and makes you sick, so you just stay there not eating, because after all you're dead and you don't need to eat. Uh, I think I really should be writing a spin-off for The Good Place based in a bad place. But anyway, one of the souls some, somehow manages to spot the two travellers even in this weather, and he sits up to talk to them, although actually we don't know his sets until later. It challenges Dante to recognise him, since he was born before the man had died, 
And Namta replies that Diagoni makes it as if he had never seen him. And then at last, after a few more verses of poetic running around the topic, he will introduce himself as a Florentine man known as Chaco. Chaco was both a colloquial way to mean a bit of a pig, but also a diminutive of the name Giacomo. And I don't really know what came before and whether it meant one or the other. It's possible they were both through at the same time and he was a Giacomo who liked to eat. Either way, Dante expresses his pain at this man's suffering, but quickly moves on to what really matters. And we'll see there is a pattern to this. What really matters in the sixth canto of every book is politics. And so Dante asks Chaco if he knows what will be of the divided city, that is Florence. In an age of news broken by people on social media while stuff is still taking place, it seems hard to believe that Dante was living a few hundred miles away and not know what was going on. Uh, obviously, he must have known because it's not like Chaco truly spoke to him. Although, to be fair, I have some bizarre dreams, so anything is possible. But we are meant to look at Dante in the journey as not knowing what Dante the author does. In fact, the journey is written to have happened just before the events that would lead to his exile, which have started to take place in May of 1300. The key of this speech, however, is that Chaco suggests there are only two righteous men in Florence, and nobody listens to them because pride, envy and greed are the three sparks that ignited their hearts, and I'm quoting verses 73 to 75. They are, once again, the scenes behind the three beasts of the first canto. Whether the number two was literal or a figure of speech, though just mean very few, we know that Dante would count himself among them. He was, at the time, an official in the government of Florence, and what kicked off the event leading to this exile was a false accusation of wrongdoing in his role. As Dante in the journey was Dante before things went sour, he asked an innocent question about a number of high-profile people of his time who had already passed away, saying he wanted to know if they were saved since they worked for the good of Florence. And Chaco goes, mm-mm, they are the worst. You'll see them later in your journey. The final thing that Chaco would tell Dante is to remember him to the people on Earth and that he will say no more and answer no more questions. And then he kind of like just drops off like he's dead again. And Virgil will explain to Dante that Chaco will not be able to get up again until the day of the Last Judgment. So Dante wants to know what will happen then, and Virgil tells him to go back to his knowledge of Aristotle, and pretty much implies that there will be more suffering, because after the Last Judgment they will have reached their fullness, even if the fullness is not perfection. And as if they did not uh, throw us a huge philosophical bomb, they move on until they find Pluto at the entrance of the next circle. Before we also move on to the next chapter in tomorrow's episode, let's have a little look at this idea a little further. So it's based on a principle in the physics of Aristotle according to which the perfection of the human body makes it more sensitive to both pleasure and pain, since the souls will be at the last judgment reunited to the resurrected body and therefore as close to perfection as the dumb will ever be, the pain will be more than it was while waiting for that final act in the exaction of divine justice. The verse itself is almost a word-for-reward quote from St. Thomas Aquinas once again. In this case, the de anima is treaty on the soul. 
prompt, first book, 14th lesson. This is an interesting insight in the idea that the soul needs a body to be complete, especially at an age when a lot of our thinking is some kind of reheated principle from the old heresy of Gnosticism. But we'll take up again tomorrow for our seventh canto, which is the one that concludes the first day at last. Take care. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Alessia's Divine Comedy, a journey through Dante's masterpiece. Thank you also to Alexander Nakarada for the music, which is Panfer 10 or Ets if it was not meant as a Roman numeral, and is available in the public domain. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Alessia underscore Chic or on my blog www.chicancatholic.com.